another episode of the anarchist experience episode 402 aka year eight week 30 uh coming at you this week as always i am your host mr richie rich along with mc and ks and since this is your regularly scheduled saturday broadcast uh you can find this show live on clubhouse uh the club is the anarchist experience or at me at riches for rich r-i-c-h-e-s the number four R-I-C-H, and I will click all the little notification buttons when we start the show live uh, so you can participate if you wish. Raise your hand in the club and let us know what your thoughts are. Uh, we do the show, uh, we start recording typically live Saturdays around 3 p.m. Eastern time, uh, so figure that out where you're at, um, and that's when we do the live broadcast. Otherwise, thank you for downloading. We do appreciate that as well. That being said, uh, what is going on with you guys this week? I've got nothing. Oh, good. That's exactly what I like to hear. KS, it's on you. Well, traveling to uh, London, and it, uh, this is like going into the, into the um, firestorm because everything in London is going on strike, they say. Okay. And, uh, they're, they're, they're complaining because, um, you know, prices are going up and their wages haven't been going up uh, to keep play, pace. Big surprise. Yeah, I mean, that's... Isn't that uh, a pattern throughout history, right? Yeah, sure. With sure. with inflationary currency, right? The the last people to get their hands on those newly minted funds is the average, you know, citizen in whatever country is inflating the currency, and so wages are the last to go up to keep up. Seems pretty typical. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. Right. I remember um, trying to get ahead of this, right? Because I saw inflation coming. In my previous place of employment, right, I was always like, I need a raise. I need a raise. I need a raise. Like every, you know, every time I felt like asking or every every time like the bosses came to see me, right, because mm-hmm. that job, you know, I didn't I didn't interact with the bosses in person very often, right? Like I, I ran the facility by myself. I did everything, you know, kind of on my own. And occasionally the bosses would come see me. And every time they would come see me, right, and it's like, oh, how are things going? Like, I need a raise. You know, and I never did get one. They, what, they you know, killed the what position. What you point out is, is a great thing. How, you know, the politicians who always pretend to be on the side of the worker are hurting the most with the pay decrease with with all the inflation that they create with more money. Right. A but real the politicians seem like the the um, the refuge, but. In the process of this, look at the friction that's between the worker and the employer. The friction that is constant between those two forces. The employer is facing higher costs, so they cut back on on uh, wages or don't don't increase them. And the employee um, figures that they're the they're the fault. They point at each other as the cause of this problem when, in fact, it was the politicians that created it with the increase in the money supply. 
Sure. And to be fair, in my position, I never pointed at the, my employer as the problem, right? I just, I just knew that my wage had to go up in order to keep up with inflation. And I do remember one time my direct supervisor at that job, you know, telling me straight out, like, Rich, you're the only one who asks about that, right? Like, no one seems to care uh, about their their wage. And I go, well, then no one else is paying attention to what's going on outside <laughs> in the economy. Well, you know? you're the only one that's asking because you're the only one bold enough to say something. The others are worried that they're going to lose their job or, or they're going to create friction with their employer. Yeah, maybe. You know, I, I'd say that all this friction between employer and employee is the, is the thing that's the uh, unintended consequence of this uh, inflation. Now, now I, don't blame, I will also don't, point out them blame the source of it. Most I mean, of my other coworkers were that, female, though, so that could have played a role as well, right? <laughs> like there was one other facility with a male, uh, with the male manager, and as soon as the owner decided he was, you know, selling the company, and you know, our, um, we might be moving to a new company or a corporate might be looking to buy out or whatever, he was the first one to bolt. He's like, "Okay, I've had enough. I'm out of here, deuces," and I stuck around to the very end. But that could have played a role, right? Don't aren't there statistics out there that? Females are less likely to ask for those things and aren't you know willing to negotiate higher prices or higher wages for themselves. Females are more agreeable, and that means they're less likely to fight for a raise. Wish they're more agreeable in real life. Jesus. So was that your, your female <laughs> side that decided to stay around rather than to leave? Uh, no, I would. You know, after I did talk to the owner when when he said he was selling the company, and um, I I. I I don't want to, uh, this is going to sound weird. I trusted him. I believed him um, when he said that he thought that the company that was coming on board was going to offer us uh, a good package, you know, to stay with the company. Um, and because of, you know, because of how w- well I had done up until that point, you know, was was the candidate most likely uh, to, you know, be eligible for a promotion within this new bigger corporate structure. And I went, yeah, you're probably right, you know, but we'll see. I'll talk to them. I'll see what they have to say. And I did, and they didn't like what I had to say because I was, you know, of the of the six man of the six facilities that were getting sold, um, four managers decided not to go to the new company. Um, one manager decided to go to the new company, and I was the only one that the new company flat out rejected. And it was probably because I said, like, man, based on what I'm already getting. Right, the the pay that you're offering isn't comparable. Well, which proves that then uh, that is the reason why people don't want to be so bold as to demand for pay raises because they're less less likely to be kept on. I mean, yeah. if there's an, when the opportunity comes up, then they'll lose their job. That's why they're afraid. That's I'm not agreeable. Yeah. So good, you know, and the one who stayed on, um, I can probably say this now because they, I doubt they listen to this show. Um, but she confided in me that the only reason she was staying on um, was for the, you know, the uh, the benefits package, right? She understood that the wages weren't there, um, you know, compared to what she was expecting. But the benefits were far better uh, than what she was getting with our current company um, and far better than, you know, going through her husband. And she, she had some medical issues that, you know, really needed the the, the medical coverage. I went, well, that's a good enough reason for you, but I always waive the medical coverage because uh, the if I if I get the medical coverage, then the state comes after me. 
I go, <laughs> so to avoid that, I just decline it. I don't never sign up for any of that nonsense. Right. <clears throat> hey, so back to inflation, unsure. though. I think uh, the problem in a, in a lot of the world, uh, especially the places that were handing out money, like the U.S. and I guess the U.K. probably did the same, right? They were giving stimulus checks to people. Yep. Well, yeah, big time. So but what that does, you're actually paying people to be less productive. And so not only do you have uh, inflation of the money supply, but you have less supply of other things. And so you've got prices going up, not only because there's more money around, but because there's less of those things. Yep. And so the solution then, of course, as always, is for the government to get out of the way and stop monkeying with the system because the system can't reach some sort of equilibrium. You know, it's never perfect, but it's always trending that way towards right. an equi- equilibrium. Um, and if you print a whole bunch of money, you're essentially uh, doing the opposite of that. You're you're guaranteeing uh, trending towards more inflation and possibly hyperinflation. So I don't know if if they're if they have any sight on uh, trying to increase production because that's basically the way capitalism works is that people are competing to produce. And that is what brings prices down. And if you're paying people uh, simply because they're angry and they're protesting in the street, um, you'll probably get more of that. <laughs> sure. You know, just give me more money. Give me more money forever. And uh, and that's all they will, they will get is more money and they will not get uh, a functioning right. economy. And, and again, that's something that we recognized from the beginning, right? Like, I don't... I don't post enough on social media or at all on social media, but we did talk about it, right? Everyone that was like, give me my stimmy, give me my stimmy, give me my stimmy, right? Everyone, all of those ignoramuses and ignorant people ignored what you just said, MC, and that's the supply side of the equation, right? Yeah. If everyone's getting a stimmy and no one's going to work, then nothing's getting produced. So what do you think yeah. you're going to buy with that stim check? It, when it nothing's being produced, I mean he's he's constantly in the news, but he's he's had uh, a lot of good insight into the economy. That's Elon Musk. He said, "You know, if if people don't make stuff, there's no stuff." Yeah, <laughs> <You know>? yeah. <laughs> it's like why why does it take a genius <laughs> to point that out? You know, <laughs> like does does everybody just walk around with their eyes closed? <laughs> yeah. So it was it was brought up again recently, but it's an old meme um, from like August, I think, and it was you know something like Gordon Ramsay uh, got in trouble. Uh, you guys know Gordon Ramsay, the professional chef, celebrity chef. Oh yeah. Okay. So he got in trouble because he was at like some meat market or whatever, looking at a lamb, like a live lamb, going like, "I'll take that one," and rubbing his hands together, going, "Ooh, yummy." <laughs> yummy, 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 yummy. What are you supposed to do? <laughs> right. right. But they got upset. And the, and the meme was like, Gen Z finally figures out where meat comes from. You know I mean? <laughs> like they have no idea that there's, there's a supply side of that. It doesn't magically manifest on the store shelf, pre-cut into little cubes for you to make your lamb chops or your stew or whatever it happens to be. Like there, there's a process behind all of that. 
And uh, but one one day they they are experimenting with just artificial synthetic uh, chicken, for example. Okay. So one day we'll just be out of the test tube. It won't uh, won't. So in which case they'll slaughter the live ones and not create them anymore. Well, the thing about the Impossible Burger is it's impossible and it's not real. <laughs> <laughs> well, e- even even if they have test tube chickens, chaos, right? Where are those chickens? Where's who's going to be manning those machines, right? And getting the uh, the the ingredients or whatever I don't know what I don't know how to phrase that uh, to to create this impossible chicken meat, right? There's still a production process on the supply side of that where work has to get done. Sure. Even if it comes from a test tube, right? Someone's got to compile it. Someone's got to manufacture. There's got to be a manufacturing plant somewhere run by robots, manned by somebody. Right, it doesn't just it, magically manifest. But it, but it won't be Mary's little lamb. That's uh, fine. My so. my my point was less about the lamb and more about you know the supply side of that equation, right? They they want they want the stimulus, uh, but they they don't but they can't buy anything with it because nothing gets produced if everyone just gets a stimulus check, right? Especially if the reason nothing's getting produced and everyone's getting a stimulus check is because the government shuts down supply. And they, you know, I, I don't yeah, know how people, true it people is. People measure their wealth by the numbers of dollars that they're paid, rather than what they can buy with them. Yeah. yeah, which is why I never buy into it when they say, you know, the stock market's going up or it's at an all-time high, <laughs> or profits are at an all-time high. Well, of course the they same are. Same as it always playing is. with inflated money. <laughs> of course, it's going to go up, right? What can you get for it? That's important. Right. Oh, we've 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 inflated the currency, and all these companies are making record-breaking profits. I go, yeah, because everything had to go up. You forced it up. Well, and and inflation is always and everywhere a redistribution effect. The wealth is still there, but it's in different hands. Um, those who are holding on to paper because they get a paycheck or they've got a savings account they're depending on or a pension. Those are earning a lot less and there are a lot more of those people and and the the wealth increases in the property that people have uh, uh, debt land gold things like that that are in greater demand during times of inflation and the government's the biggest holder of all of those yep. the government benefits tremendously by inflation and so do people who are uh, relatively well, well off so it's a huge transfer of wealth with inflation too and right. i think that most people don't don't really quite get that at my at my current job, um, every you know every couple of weeks or every week or so, I end up in a brainstorming session with my boss. He's the marketing manager. I'm his assistant currently. And every week, you know, every every brainstorming session, it comes down to the same thing, right? How do we get more productivity out of the workers? You know, we we um, our our primary source of lead generation for the sales team is telemarketing. And, you know, say what you want about that specialty. Um, it's effective and it works. And we're not, you know, scamming people out of anything. So I, I've, I feel no moral opposition to it, even though I know some people do. Um, that being said, you know, how do we get more productivity out of the workers, Rich? And I said, well, you have to pay them more. Right, and I'm, and he goes like, "Well, that, how does that work?" And I go, "Well, not the ones we have now, right? 
but the ones we're trying to get, right? We, you know, we, we post ads on Craigslist. We, I, I've posted a handful of job ads on some know nothing job boards just because he said, find some new places to post ads, Rich. And I went, all right, they're not going to work, but I'll, I'll fucking do it. You know, like I know what works, you know, cause I know where I go and I don't go to like these third rate job boards to find, find a job. Um, so we found that you can post the job on indeed for free, right? Which apparently they had no idea you could do that. They were sponsoring job ads on indeed to, you know, to, to hire people like me and, I think I ended up applying through Craigslist anyway, so whatever. Um, but I go like, you can post for free on Indeed, but Indeed is very specific about like the restrictions for your post when you post a free ad on Indeed. And so, whereas we expect tele, you know our telemarketing team to make around eighteen dollars an hour, like that's the goal in in the end, right? I can't post that on Indeed because that's not the base pay that we're hiring at. If we wanted to pay for the Indeed ads, uh, we could post it, you know, in, 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 in similar fashion. But the way, the way Indeed is structured and the way our pay structure is, is that our base pay is $12 an hour. And so he goes like, okay, so what, do you, what shall we do? I go, well, you got to pay people more because the quality people, right, the professional telemarketers, right, the people who are good at this job and the people we want working for us, aren't applying for a $12 an hour job. It's almost insulting, right? I go, I drive, I drive down my, you know, down the street in my, the town where I live. And, you know, I pass by Dunkin' Donuts and McDonald's and Burger King and all these entry level high school, you know, fast food jobs, right? And the big sign out front is $15 an hour plus sign on bonus, right? I go like, that's that's the bar, right? That's the low end of the bar. Fight for fifteen came around. You know they changed the mentality of the worker. That fifteen dollars is what you should be striving for, right? As you know, as, as ineffective as that was in getting the fifteen dollars an hour, uh, you know, minimum wage to you know the minimum wage to go all the way up to fifteen dollars an hour. In a lot of areas, it has become the de facto minimum wage, right? Like New Hampshire has no minimum wage. And there's a handful of other states that also follow the federal guidelines. Um, but the de facto minimum wage here, based on that signage, right, is $15 an hour. And he goes, well, that's because that's because you live in, you know, in the, in the big city, Rich, you know, big city for New Hampshire standards. Um, you live in the city. When I drive down, you know, in the, in the rural areas, you know, it's less than that. I go, fine, right, then either advertise in those rural areas, right, in which case you're still competing, right? You know, if, if, if minimum wage in the rural areas is still $12 an hour, you're still attracting minimum wage candidates. Uh, the most recent conversation I had with him, he goes, you know, he, we, we're talking about this again. And he goes, what do you think, you know, the, the pay for national telemarketers, like what are the big national telemarketing companies paying their workers? And what I told you, man, like the, the, the bare minimums, $15 an hour. Like that's, I've said that from the beginning because that's, that's my baseline. And he goes, well, I've done the research, Rich. Uh, the national telemarketers are paying 1450 an hour. I go, so I was close. Like, <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you better pay 15 because then, you know, then there's no, there's no, uh, 
confusion. Well, not only there's no confusion, I go like you have to pay now you have to pay fifteen to attract those people away from the big national telemarketing companies, right? To come work for your, you know, four million dollar a year uh, construction company in Suncook, New Hampshire, right? Like there's there's no comparison there. You got national brand, national whatever, versus a small telemarketing, you know, a, a small construction company in New Hampshire, right? You have to pay more. And then he goes, and in Lowell, Massachusetts, like right down the road from us, you know, the going rate is sixteen fifty. I go see, so you can't even attract local candidates because you know it's it's right over there. Um, and I, I, w- I will say this: we t- we talk about you know uh, you've mentioned this a bunch, MC, and you're always correct when you do. Uh, the minimum wage is always zero, right? No matter where you go. So we get all these candidates rolling in from all parts of the country because we post a job for remote work, right? At twelve dollars an hour, you know, base. And occasionally, because it's a telemarketing job, you know, we'll get a quality candidate with uh, call center experience and all this and that. And we get really excited, like, ooh, this could be the guy, right? Or this, she could be the one to, to really break it, you know, break it, break through this uh, mundane, meager, low work that we're, low productivity that we're getting from our workers. So he goes, you know, call this dude, Rich, or, you know, he called, he told the dude to call back when I was around, the dude calls in, and I'm going through all the interview questions, and I, I you know, figured he talked to him before, and I go, like, well, says here you're in, like, Maryland. He goes, yep, I'm in Maryland. I go, hold on a minute. I need to check something, right? And I, off to the side, I have, a, like, a spreadsheet of all the upcoming minimum wage changes that's scheduled to go infected January 2023 or whatever happens to be. And Maryland, like they're changing their minimum wage to like $14 or some odd change an hour. And so I immediately had to cut them off and go, we can't hire you because we're only offering 12, right? You're a great candidate, but you can't work for us for 12 because the law is that we have to pay the minimum wage, at least the minimum wage, uh, where the work is being done. So if you're making phone calls from Maryland, we have to pay the prevailing wage in Maryland. And we as a company are not willing to do that. Sorry, sir. Continue to be unemployed. And, we and then to- he uses that as the, the justification that he he tried to get a job, so therefore he still qualifies for the unemployment. Yeah, well, I don't know if he's on an, I have no idea if he was on unemployment. Mm. Um, but How did he feel about it? Was he upset or bothered or understood i mean he took it like a champ I, I told him the truth and said like you know if if our wages change or your your living situation changes right if you move if you move out of maryland to some place where we can pay you 12 bucks an hour you know and he you know during the interview process he said like i'm okay with 12 because i'm confident in my abilities to make more than 12 through a bonus structure and i go good that's what we like to hear you know, you're the you're the rare person who's like ready to go and has experience and all this, and hopefully can make a big impact, right? Because of that, and we can't even pay him. You know, we you know I'm I'm sure. Here's the thing: if it were me, I would have paid him the prevailing Maryland wage, right? But I got to go through my boss. The owner won't do it, right? The owner's uh, you know successful businessman, but little little pinchy on the pennies. Um. And when I talked to the boss about it, he's like, well, you know, you know, the old saying, you know, mind the pennies and the dollars take care of themselves. So the owner watches out for small expenses like that. So, 
you know, his minimum wage prevented him from making more than minimum wage with us or, you know, potentially um, simply because it is what it was. And so it's zero. So rather than getting a $12 an hour job working remote from home at the, at, you know, at his convenience, right. You know, don't have to go out, don't have to commute. Don't just, you have the equipment, you sit there, you do the, do the work. Uh, we had to pass on him for now. Um, I have an example of a sure. negative uh, wage that um, is quite acceptable to people. For example, if they go to a school that says, well, now you have to do some practical internship somewhere, okay? So they take an internship that's a non-paid internship, and they're glad to get it because they're getting the experience. But um, not only are they not getting paid, but they're paying the school to get the credits to get this recognition yeah. of the internship. So it's a negative uh, real wage. But they do it because they, they realize that the pay is coming in the form of experience. And so that's one thing that the minimum wage advocates never acknowledge, the fact that people are willing to work for less to get the experience uh, to put them higher on the career ladder. Yeah. Well, they, they backhandedly acknowledge it. Right, because when politicians were standing up for the fight for fifteen, and I will, I will vote for this fight for fifteen because everyone deserves a living wage and everyone deserves at least fifteen dollars an hour. And then some conservative confronts him and goes, "Like, don't you have unpaid interns on your staff?" And go, "Well, that's different. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. that's you can't even compare that. That's right. right? Congressmen always were exempted from the minimum wage uh, for their own personnel. That's right. Yep." Well, and because it's an unpaid internship, a lot of it's in you know interns. Right? Mm-hmm. Bernie Bernie Sanders, right, like one of the biggest ones, had postings, you know, had job postings for people on the, on his campaign staff, right, for less than the fight for fifteen wage that was prevailing at the time. So, right. so as a workaround, is it possible to hire everybody as an intern and pay them less than minimum wage? Um, in this state, in in Hawaii, you can't. You, there, I I heard from. Uh, Grassroots Institute wanted to have interns, um, you know, that were eager to get the experience and the training, but they couldn't uh, because they felt that the law itself was going to apply to that as well. So they had to pay. And, of course, that eliminated a lot of potential staff for them and a lot of potential opportunities for the students who were would have been glad to have the research experience. So for our company, there there is a workaround, um, but it's not often used. Because, because of the nature of the job, and so we do have an, we do have the option for someone to work as an independent contractor, um, and they get ninety five dollars per qualified lead, and so the and and that number prevails because according to the owner, that's the maximum he's willing to pay for a lead. Right, you get you get me a qualified lead. I bid ninety five dollars is my max. So from the marketing perspective, you know we're we're limited to you know what can we do uh, within that within that con, uh, within that constraint. And so independent contractors, right, you know fall off. So we, we you know with the last group that we hired and trained and got going, there was one lady that was an independent contractor, and she was hired as an independent contractor for. Uh, a couple of reasons, primarily because she was Hispanic, right? And we have uh, we have a backlog of customers uh, of potential prospects that no one can talk to because they don't speak English, right? 
So this lady, uh, her, her husband or something works uh, for uh, a New Hampshire co- company, uh, but they're currently living in Mexico doing Mexican things. And so we can't hire her as an employee because the local law prevails and it's complicated to try to figure out what the Mexican law says. So they're like, well, we can hire you as an independent contractor, right? And telemarketing is difficult, right? Like there's the, the expect, the, the, the standard uh, that we set for telemarketers that of our crew of like 10 plus telemarketers at one point, only one, only one has been able to hit. And that's, you know, part of our dilemma, right? Is that you generate one lead for every four hours that you work. Like that's, that seems reasonable and that's the standard, right? But if you're new to telemarketing, you may not generate jack shit for a couple of weeks because even though you've been trained, right, there's a comfort level in getting the job done that professionals have that newbies just don't have. So if you're an independent contractor and you sit on the phone for eight hours, right, your first two, three, four days on the job, and you haven't generated a single lead, let alone a qualified lead, right, you've just spent 40 hours, you know, if it's a regular work, you've just done 40 hours of nothing and got paid jack shit for it, right? Because you don't get anything until you, until you generate a lead, and that's $95, you know? So it's very discouraging on the front end, but can be quite lucrative on the back end, but most people don't wait for those back end results. And so, you know, four, four hours on the phone, nothing, you know, and, and this, you know, I, I see the data. So I think, you know, they, they all started about two weeks ago now, like they've completed two full weeks of work and this independent contractor, because we can't tell her when to work, um, has done like two and a half hours worth of calls and generated nothing. Right. (laughs) All right. (laughs) But what, what else do you expect? Right. You got to do the work to get the stuff done. Um, so yeah. And it's, again, it's not, the job isn't difficult, right? It's just, there's nuances, I guess. Um, so that's, that's the workaround, right? We, we could hire everyone as an independent contractor. Um, but we would burn through leads like nobody's business because they're all going to give up before they actually get good at the job. If that answers your question for the workaround. And when I posted the job on like social media, right. One lady who was an independent contractor, like cried foul, like this company's just a scam. They hired me and never paid me a single, you know, dime, even though they told me they would like, well, yeah. Cause you know, you were an independent contract and you didn't generate any leads. Like, you know, not, not my problem, ma'am, <laughs> you know, but that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the situation. But going back to the, you know, in, inflation and the minimum wage and all that, that's the, that's it, right? We, we don't have quality workers uh, because the owner, you know, where the buck stops isn't willing to pay for quality workers. And so we're not attracting quality workers. And so we get, you know, I keep telling them like, if, if you guys aren't going to change the policy, Right, then we have to figure out a way to make do with what we've got. You know, like that's it. You guys either fix something up top or stop calling this a problem and just deal with it. Right? Salesmen don't have leads to run. Talk to the owner. 
right? We, we're doing our best with what we've got and we can't do much more with what we've got because what we've got ain't much. How do we attract more better quality candidates, Rich? Like obviously pay them more, right? And, and you know, this is, this is where I struggle, um, with a, a little bit. I mean, I've, I've reconciled it, but I struggle a little bit within, you know, the anarcho-capitalist philosophy and, you know, business and private enterprise and all of that. I'm like, I sympathize with the workers, right? Partially because I am one and partially because I recognize that we are getting screwed, right? <laughs> Right, like you know the 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 whole um, what is the uh, quiet quitting, you know, and uh, the the great the great resignation that they were calling it, you know, earlier this year, or last year, or whatever. Right, if you're if you're new to the workforce, right, and you're getting paid uh, uh, less than fifteen dollars an hour, since that's you know that's what I'm going to call the prevailing minimum wage, right, and everything around you is getting more expensive. Right, and you, you, the, everyone has fought so hard to get to that fifteen dollars an hour, but government inflated away the buying power. Right, what's the motivation to go to work? Right, why should I? You know why? Why should I take a job or two jobs or live with roommates? You know, galore. But you know, I'm sure that's still the you know thing that happens in Hawaii. Right, why should I go through all of that hard work? to be able to buy less, right? What's, what's the motivation? What, what do companies have to do, you know, to attract me as a worker? Well, the answer is always pay more, right? And then, and, you know, and, and the mentality now is like, well, okay, you pay more, you know, and the work, and, then, and the company wants more for their money. Well, you don't get more for your money because I don't have more to give, you know? Like, so what if I want to go to work, do my contractually obligated job, and then go home, you know? Like, my boss, again, uh, relate to this, my boss is salaried. And one of the things he doesn't like about uh, my schedule is that I have a second job to go to. So there's only one night of the week where I can stay late. You know, where we're open, you know, the, we keep the office open uh, Monday through Thursday uh, till 8 p.m., and then Fridays and Saturdays, we do a half day. So we get off at one. And he would like, you know, the marketing assistant to be there until 8 p.m. on some of those days. And I go, well, the only day I got for you is Thursday. You know, I can, I can be here till 8 p.m. on Thursday. Well, for him, I don't know if it's a lack of trust and maybe he'll get over it at some point. That makes that on the other three days, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then part of Friday through the weekend, right? He is on duty until 8 p.m. So I leave at five to go to my second job. And he goes, yeah, I, I sign off here. I go home. I eat a quick dinner. And then I am back on the computer until eight o'clock at night, only to do it all over again. I go like, I wish I could have some sympathy for you because I don't do anything until after eight anyway, when I get home from my second job, right? So I'm doing it there. You're doing it here, you know, big whoopity whoop. And, you know, and he goes like, well, and I go like, you know, based on everything else, I go, you know, that all it would take, right? And I probably wouldn't even take it right away because we're still in the feeling each other out phase, right? 
is you have to offer me more money, right? You have to buy me away from that other job, right? And then I'll stay here until 8 p.m. Because I don't care where I'm doing the work. I'm just going to do it where I maximize my personal paycheck. And right now, that's there. And as a, and to be honest with you, you wouldn't probably have to double my pay to get me to quit that job because that job is so easy to do in the limited amount of time that I do it. And because I've been, I've be, you know, become efficient at it, um, I get paid, you know, much higher by the hour, even though I work less hours, right? Like I, I clean a bank, I get the, I get the prevailing minimum wage to clean a bank, um, but I clean it in a lot less time. So I get like, I get, I get paid by the job basically. And I have that amount of time to get the job done. And I do it in usually less than half the time. Right. So I, I clean two banks, each bank, I get paid for two hours worth of work. Uh, but I'm usually out of there in, in two hours tops. So it like doubles, doubles the hourly rate, you know, well above anything else that I'm making, um, around town I go, and you gotta and you have to beat that right if you want me here until eight you have to beat that and so far no one's been able to beat that or no one's been willing to beat that and so i just keep that job and off i go and then my hours are limited here to you you know and that that was his only complaint so far is like yeah i like everything you're doing rich still don't like your hours and i go well then buy the rest of them man you know talk to the <laughs> owner talk to the owner buy the rest of them no. Right on. I, I am for sale and you just haven't earned the bid for that period of time. Right. You, you won the bidding war from nine to five and you know, 11, eight on Thursdays, but everything else you have not, you, you, you lost the bid. You know, that's, that's the bottom line. But I All work right. every do you, Saturday. Do we have any headlines? I got plenty of headlines. Here's one. I'd, I'd like to hear them. The many ways bad policy worsens your daily commute. Uh, headline, Jones Act leaves New England vulnerable in wintertime calamity. Uh, headline, subsidies to help workers would hurt poor people. Well, there you go. More on that. Uh, headline, police protect town by arresting, arresting elderly women for feeding stray cats, neutering them, and getting them adopted. Uh, headline, are climate lockdowns beginning? An English county will require permits to drive through other neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah, that's my favorite. <laughs> All right, we'll move that to the front then. Uh, headline, cop fired for offering a homeless man a shit sandwich, rehired by nearby town. Uh, headline, you've got to be kidding, Noosebaum, uh, that's, that's some chick, uh, demands animals stop eating each other. And finally, headline, leftists aren't capable of surviving economic collapse. Here's why. So we'll do the climate one first because MC liked that one. Did any one of those jump out at UKS? Yeah, I'm curious why the woman got arrested for uh, treating the cats. You know? All right. So we'll move that one second. All right. What is this? Sorry about that. Thought I turned off my timer to wake up for my nap. Guess I just hit the snooze button on it. Our climate lockdown's beginning. Oh, wait. Yep. An English county will require permits to drive through other neighborhoods. Uh, in early December, the county of Oxfordshire in England voted to begin intensely filtering traffic in certain parts of Oxford between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. This is slated to begin sometime in 2023 upon completion of some existing transportation projects. 
Right now, the local government says there will be a six-month trial of using the filter system. At the end of the trial period, there will be a vote as to whether or not it should be continued. Six portions of Oxford will be restricted from private vehicles during this time period. Residents can travel freely in their own areas. However, attempting to enter a different restricted area using a private vehicle will require a permit and violators will be subject to fines of about $85. How will this be enforced? Contrary to some internet speculation, there are no plans to erect physical barriers. People still be allowed to walk, bike, or take public transportation wherever they want. Vehicles, uh, vehicle usage will be monitored with an automatic number plate recognition cameras, the same technology that has been around for more than 20 years to collect money remotely on toll roads. The ANPR cameras will also enable the county to issue permits to private drivers to make a limited amount of trips within the city within the restricted time frame. Uh, critics all over the world, including Australia Sky News host Rowan Dean, insist that this is a gross violation of freedom of movement and will lead us down the slope to a medieval world with an autonomous nobility and a peasantry tied to the land. Uh, supporters reply that this is simply an attempt to remedy Oxford's notoriously horrible traffic. What are we supposed to think? What's actually going on? I think it's uh, I think it's important to be precise with our language. The second one side becomes hyperbolic, the other side uses it as an excuse to throw all the arguments out the window. County Oxfordshire is not proposing locking down people within their neighborhoods the way many of us were supposed to be locked in our homes during COVID. These aren't exactly climate lockdowns, but the restrictions on using personal vehicles are extreme and could prove devastating to anyone that can't walk or bike in all kinds of weather. Uh, proponents, proponents like to point out that individual drivers will be able to get permits to drive into restricted segments up to 100 times per year, which averages to about twice a week. For people with flexible schedules working part-time from home, this seems workable. But many people cannot work from home, and just imagine trying to throw children's schedules into the mix. Let's say you have to drive to one section for work and another for your child's school. You'll only have a permit to drive your vehicle once a week. What if you have a middle school student in one sector, a high school student in another, and your job in another? It gets very ridiculous, very fast. A spokesperson for the council that passed this measure defends the situation, saying, Everywhere in the city will still be accessible by car, although some private car drivers may need to use a different route during the operating hours of the traffic filters. Uh, most parents do, do not actually enjoy driving their children all over the creation. It is just a facet of modern life that we all have to put up with. If there were quicker ways to get through Oxford, they wouldn't need to be mandated. English drivers would figure them out on their own. This looks like the classic example of the government try, trying to solve one problem and creating another larger one in its place. And again, I won't call this a lockdown because it's not exactly, but it reminds me of a lockdown in that it's going to pit different groups of people against each other. Professionals with the option of working from home with no more than one or two children that also happen to be old enough to use public transport on their own will be okay. People that must work in person and people with children who cannot use public transport for one reason or another will be severely impacted. Uh, 
And the mother in me cannot help but think of pregnant women being expected to ride their bikes around town in the winter. I was back in the office four weeks after my first child was born, but if someone had told me I had to ride a bike in an English winter to get there, I would have pitched a fit. These traffic filters may not be climate lockdowns, but it's important to recognize what they will be and what they set the stage for. Installing these traffic filters with the attendant cameras and data collection represent a big step towards a surveillance state. Even if County Oxfordshire hate the cameras and vote to stop using them next year, the infrastructure to monitor the movements of private vehicles will be there. Right now, the plan is to charge violators uh, 70 pounds, that's $85, which is comparable to a speeding ticket. It's annoying, but not disastrous for most people. It's the kind of thing where if your child gets sick or a teenager does something really stupid and you need to get to the doctor, and even though you haven't got a pass, it's still doable. But once the infrastructure is in place, it would only require a very small change to jack the fines up to something crazy, like 7,000 pounds. And that would turn a small emergency, like a needed trip to the doctor at an inconvenient time, into a total disaster. I'm not saying County Oxfordshire is planning to do this because right now they aren't. All I'm saying is that once the infrastructure is in place, doing so will be very easy. If anyone thinks that is just preposterous, and of course the British government wouldn't do something so ridiculous, I would invite them to read the press release on the UK government website regarding their climate change goals. On April 20th, 2021, the British government announced its plan to slash emissions by 78% relative to 1990 levels by 2035. This is the world's most ambitious climate change target. The British government has a variety of strategies by which they expect to make this happen, and largely eliminating private vehicle usage will be a part of it. The British ban on the sale of new gas and diesel-powered vehicles will come even earlier than California's in 2030. Hybrid vehicles will be able to sold until 2035, when all new vehicles must be completely zero emission. Obviously, UK regulators are not taking into account the massive emissions that go into manufacturing lithium car batteries as opposed to conventional car batteries, but that's another story. As in the US, electric cars in the UK are more expensive than conventional ones. The average price of a new electric vehicle in the UK is about 50,000 pounds. And while the price for a conventional vehicle is not much lower, about 46,000 pounds, the existence of many more used conventional vehicles means that conventional vehicles are still the only realistic option for lower income drivers. I've never bought a new vehicle. And while there won't be an outright ban on combustion engines, ending sales of new ones means that parts and maintenance on the existing conventional vehicles will become more expensive and difficult to obtain the uk intends to drastically reduce carbon emissions by 2035 and nearly limiting personal vehicles usage will help to achieve that Uh, leaders don't want to look but they want us to make us change our lifestyle they don't want to look bad but they want to make us change our lifestyle worldwide leaders don't want to look like dictators but at the same time we're not shy about insisting we need to completely change our lifestyles most of us in the u.s are familiar with biden's build back better plan Did you know that Canada's Justin Trudeau also promised to build back better? So has New Zealand's Jacinda Ardern, and so has the Netherlands' Mark Rutte, and so has the UK's Boris Johnson. Leaders want us to be ready to go along with whatever changes are deemed necessary by their political class. Very few people are publicly cheering the lockdowns, and when this story about traffic filters generated headlines about climate lockdowns, mainstream press was quick to distance the project from lockdown rhetoric. But the lockdowns were not universally hated. For many, 
The social disruption represented an opportunity to remake society. Boris Johnson has pledged to build back greener, and in his 10-point plan, he makes it clear that massive change in transportation will be a part of it. The British government claims that this is not trying to restrict anyone's movement, but the end result of more expensive vehicles and strict traffic controls will be to restrict movement. There's just no way around it. This may not be a full-blown climate lockdown, but would be a trial one of the infrastructure and surveillance equipment that could enforce one. Uh, end of the article. So there you go. From 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., you're not allowed to go into another neighborhood without paying the state. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, that's terrible and stupid. And, uh, and I hope they uh, uh, shoot out the, um, the cameras with uh, whatever uh, non-firearm they have. <laughs> Actually, in, in principle, I like the idea of variable road pricing for the purpose of regulating the, the, the volume of traffic, but not for deciding what kind of traffic uh, and when and where and all that sort of thing. I mean, uh, Singapore established a variable road pricing thing as a, a way of paying for the cost of roads um, and just uh, by raising the price. I mean, like you get on a toll road and all that, the price will go up if they're trying to, um, if, the, if the traffic is heavier so that um, you, you moderate the, the, the flow or the volume of traffic, but not for changing the, you know, the you know, not for discriminating against a um, uh, particular kind of car or particular kinds of people or where they're from and that sort of thing. And another thing, I thought it was ironic that here's this guy from Australia complaining about uh, obs- obstructing the freedom of movement. Excuse me, but Australia's number one on the planet for restricting the movement of people. But uh, Well, I don't know about number one, but they're... <laughs> well, one of the, yeah, yeah, one of the ones... <laughs> They were pretty harsh during the COVID lockdowns. uh, Yeah, not only for COVID, but also migration, you know, from other, uh, from outside their border. Okay. But, uh, yeah, this, uh, you know, this is egregious, this uh, kind of thing. And and I think you've pointed out how, yeah, they've they've decided to use this technique to solve a problem, and they're going to make it so complicated and expensive, to do so, and it does open up the doors for all kinds of controls that are much worse and much more costly later on by putting that infrastructure in place. Do we want it to be complicated and expensive, though? I mean, if it's complicated, right, then it's hard to follow, and then it, at at the very least, if they try to enforce it, right, then the, their court system becomes backlogged because no one knows how to interpret it. No one knows, you know, it becomes almost unenforceable through its sheer complexity. No. Unless it's just purely bureaucratic, meaning they take a picture of your license plate, they send you a bill, and I'm uh, sorry, you can't challenge it in the court because this is the, you know, the administrative process, uh, and and a lot of times it doesn't go to court. In this, in Hawaii, I think they, it, you know, the cams, the van cams, they call them. Um, you could take the case to the court, and it was often thrown out. But I don't know what how friendly. England is to getting around bureaucracy in that manner. I mean, by so like you, know, you say, the courts would be backed up with all kinds of complaints about it. Yeah, I know. You know, uh, at least some places around here in Keene, for example, Keene, New Hampshire, uh, they the the activists there have a tendency to not pay the parking meter when they're parking downtown, 
and it's not because the downtown meters are particularly expensive. They're not. Um, it's because the parking ticket is not particularly expensive. Mm-hmm. And so the parking ticket that, you know, so they'll park wherever they want, get a ticket. And the ticket at one point was $5. I think it got raised to $10. And then the, the, the technique that the activists use is, oh no, I would like a trial, you know, for this parking ticket. And the state usually backs down because why, you so know, expensive for that. it's expensive yeah. to put together a trial for a $10 parking ticket. And so the activist usually finds that their case has been dismissed or dropped or unenforced. They go, all right. So that's an effective way to park for free downtown, right? Like you get the ticket, you challenge it. Um, and if enough, if enough of us do it, right, we will overload their court system, brother, you know, cause they can't, they, they, they don't have enough courts. They don't have enough, uh, judges or whatever in town to enforce it all if we all just refuse to pay. Um, but whatever. So in this, you know, for the, for England's case, right. If everyone just got the ticket, refused to pay, right. How would, you know, un- unless, unless it's tied directly to your bank account somehow, right. Like you, you, your, your license, your, your license plate gets scanned. Uh, your accounts on file with the state and ding automatic debit, you know, overdrafting your checking account or whatever it happens to be. Um, which I guess isn't out of the realm of possibility. I just, you know, just thinking of ways to, to skirt that as best you can if you don't want that to happen. When I, when I read the article the first time, uh, the first thing that popped into my mind was like the little, uh, you know, it's, it's mostly in movies, but like the gang checkpoints, right? Like they're, they're not going to have this set up yet, but, you know, if you're going from one area to another area, and a different gang is running that area, right? There's long queues to go through the checkpoint to check your papers to make sure you're allowed within this district, right? And although, again, it's not that bad yet, it, it just reminded me of that, right? Like, you, you have your own little neighborhood fiefdom or whatever in Oxford, and between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., right, that's your little travel zone, right? Don't Don't get caught after dark, you know, trying to return, you know, the next day because all of a sudden you're you're locked out or whatever it happens to be. Um, but like I said, you know, end- if it, if it was a, a a private road, their incentive would be to maximize revenue by maximizing traffic flow and traffic use. But when the government owns it, they're they they say it's free. Um, and paid for by tax savers, but the but the incentive there is to control and to uh, increase the expense of it because it's not directly coming out of the pocket of the person when they're driving. You know, by the toll, it's coming out of some gas tax. I mean, in the United States, it's uh, ironic that the, the gas tax is used for the building of the roads, and so it's a tremendous subsidy to the using to building roads rather than uh, any deterrent from building. Well, and because of that, and because of the move toward electric vehicles, right, they're trying to ins- institute a mileage tax instead. Yeah, because, yeah, there's no gas tax, yeah. There's no gas tax. Right. But how, how do they enforce a mileage tax, right? Now they know where you're going and where you're traveling, right? How much miles you put on your vehicle. Are you, are you supposed to self-report that to the state? Oh, yes, I've only put in, you know, every year you have to go for your annual mileage inspection and get your tax bill. 
Well, likely they'll in, insert a little chip in your into your odometer or in your car that tells them everything. You know? Yeah. How invasive is that? Just like a, an electric uh, meter or water meter at your house. Uh, it'll be a miles meter on your car. Yeah. How, how invasive is that? All right. Like yeah. at least, you know, the, the water meter and the electric meter somewhat make sense uh, because it's, it's local to usage, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, but with the electric vehicle, you're theoretically already paying that when you charge, Right. You know, you're already paying. You're already paying for the electric. So do they? Do they? Well, it's possible they might might charge the tax, the, the road tax on your electricity. That's what I'm saying. Like maybe maybe just they just move to that. Maybe so. Yeah. Who knows? It that that would still be, I mean, not good, but better than, you know, better than chipping the car, and knowing everywhere you went. I guess my point. I'm trying to think of you know even in a even in a free society, right? There there would have to be a way to monitor and measure electric and water usage, and having a meter someplace doesn't seem all that unreasonable. Sure, uh, but there again, if it was a private water company, a private electricity company, they would charge and measure by how much you use. But they their incentive would be there to right to increase the revenue as as much as possible by getting you to be as convenient and easy for you to use it. <clears throat> and there'd be competitive uh, alternatives. Uh, there, when I visited a friend in Vienna, he says we have a choice of eight different electric companies. Um, so they're highly competitive. Yeah, they're friendly. They come advise you on how to reduce your expenses. You can choose whether you want it to come from this kind of, of electricity energy source or this kind of energy source. Um, I was quite impressed. Uh, it, Water, of course, would be complicated, but uh, water companies are more efficient and lower cost than uh, with when they're private than when they're government operated. Yeah, and they're more likely to be um, interested in clean water because of the liability that can be involved. Yeah, um, un- unlike Red Hill, for example. Yes, <laughs> we could get into that another day. There yeah, plenty of articles about that. Um, New Hampshire is similar, and I don't know exactly how it works because I live in an apartment and I'm a renter. Um, but there's multiple electric el- electricity companies, um, but they're they're like the middleman. They're just the delivery. Dr- they they deliver the electricity. They're not the producers. There's like one producer, I think, and don't quote me. But there's like a producer of electricity, and then multiple delivery companies that you can go through to get the electricity served to your home. So there's there's a little bit of competition there, um, but not much. And there's because of the size of New Hampshire, even though it's not all that big um, and not all that densely populated, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of areas that aren't served by city water, right? So there's there's a whole bunch of other alternatives on how do you get your water, whether it's you know well water or you know from you know f- delivery service Catchment. or whatever it happens to be. Catchment, yeah. yeah. So there's there's a lot of that as well. Like you don't you don't necessarily have to be attached um, to city water, mm-hmm. and it's and it's weird, right? Because you know at at one point in time we're, we're looking at all these other options, and I go, man, you know, you kind of I don't want to say you take the the city water for granted, uh, but it's nice it's nice to have options all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, even though That's it seems thing. a little scary. 
I always hear the you you always hear these reports about drought, uh, water shortages, and you know the very alarmist stuff. And <laughs> I'd have to say, there's never a water shortage. There's just a problem with water pricing, because as long as you have a, a low price on anything that's uh, scarce, you're going to use it much more uh, profligately and and wastefully. And uh, you're going to have not the resources for, you know, for uh, tapping and finding it. And and like in in Hawaii, we have uh, a very, very low rate for agriculture. So the, well, and in California too. Um, I think it, I remember reading in the Economist magazine that it costs $100 per uh, acre foot of water to get it from the high Sierras down to, let's say, the uh, deserts of California, where they charge the farmers about $4 per acre foot at a highly subsidized rate. Yep. And then they charge maybe $200 in the cities for uh, to, to help subsidize that. But the cities only use about 15% of the water compared to 85% of the water that's used in the uh, out on the farm. So, of course... I mean, and then they talk about, well, we're, you know, the, the Colorado River is going dry and, and uh, the, Mount, uh, the Lake Mead is going dry and we're having a shortage of water. It isn't a shortage of water. It's just that they're growing rice out in the, out in the deserts of California yep. instead of allowing imports of rice from Haiti, for example. So, you know, it's a huge twist of the political spectrum and not drought at all. Yeah. And uh, along with the prices, I've always suggested that it's a, um, a desalination issue as well, a purifying issue of the water to make it drinkable. Like there's, there's plenty of water. California is coastal, right? There's, there's no lack of water. There's just a lack of turning what they have into drinkable, usable water and maybe focus on that instead. Like yeah, you, I mean, you can't have a drought, true, but, right? Yeah. Next, when you're next to the ocean. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's, I think it's something like uh, you know twelve hundred dollars per acre foot to desalinate water, and of course they will do that because there's contracts to spend whatever it takes to 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 do that sort of thing, instead of just rationally using the water that they have, um, you know, right for that they distribute to farmers at at tiny fraction in Hawaii too. The the agriculture sector, which includes eighty golf courses. Um, they get a, an agriculture rate, which is a fraction of the price that you pay next door for a residential rate of water. Yep. yep. So the government, once again, getting in the way of letting the free market figure out what to do with water. And then Nestle yeah. gets in trouble, right? Because they get special contracts from the government to bottle it, and then they sell it. And so people, instead of getting the free public water, people have to buy their water from Nestle's, who aren't limited on those restrictions, Right. Like you, you can't water your lawn, but Nestle can 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 continue yeah. to pipe it in and sell it, you know, for increased markups in bottles. They'll pass a, a rule saying restaurants aren't allowed to serve you water until you ask for it because they're trying to conserve on yep. on uh, how much water you drink compared to, uh, you know, the vast more uh, vastly more uh, water that goes down the drain for you know. Um, say agriculture, and I get, I get on this agriculture kick because if they just ended trade barriers, we could get our agricultural products from countries all around the world that are desperately poor because they can't sell the things to the United States or Europe or Japan, 
And so they're, you know, the United States, like Biden just last week says, oh, we're helping Africa. We're going to send them another $70 billion worth of aid. Well, they don't need the aid to their yeah. rulers. They need free trade so that they can sell and earn an in- income by selling products. But no no way that protectionist Biden is going to open up trade barriers. Yep. Never happened. Final thoughts? MC? Uh, no, thanks. KS? All set. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you then. That'll do it for us. Uh, you guys know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com, on telegram, t.me slash anarchistexperience, or t.me slash theanarchistexperience. And if you would like to contribute to this show financially, financially, you can do so through Patreon, patreon.com slash theanarchistexperience. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Peace. Aloha.